Welcome to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb, helping you find purpose and joy in your life and relationships. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. First of all, I've said that we need to reverse denial by not pretending that things are somehow better than they really are. Don't pretend. That's not encouraging. Jeremiah 12 is a good illustration of that. The second point I've made as far as how encouragement works dynamically is that We need to be strengthening by drawing out the potential for courage as people have the courage to get back into the arena of failure. We need to be encouraging them by saying, yeah, that's something you want to do and I know that's important to you. God's grace is sufficient. Third point that I want to make is that um, many, many times discouragement is very illegitimate. Discouragement is very illegitimate. And discouragement is something which needs to be rebuked sometimes as opposed to relieved. There's a difference. When is discouragement illegitimate? There's such a thing as legitimate discouragement. If if, if by discouragement we mean kind of feeling the weight of the difficult world in which we live, and it really is hard to go on. By, By that definition, I would submit our Lord was discouraged as he faced the cross. In the garden, by the definition I've just given, our Lord was discouraged. It was hard. And he told his three special friends, gentlemen, this is hard for me. It really is. But our Lord was was entirely without sin, so there was no stain to his discouragement. It was part of holiness, as all that he did was an expression of of his perfect manhood as well as his deity. When is discouragement illegitimate? What distinguishes legitimate discouragement from illegitimate discouragement? Right in the back? Yeah? When being discouraged is somehow less painful, somehow it's self-protective, somehow it's manipulative. Yeah. When you understand the dynamics of depression, you can see that what we're talking about here is the beginning of depression. That when I can go into a bit of a sulk, now it makes it clearer when you use the word sulk, doesn't it, versus discouragement. When I can go into a bit of a sulk as a means of avoiding certain things, as a means of pulling from my world certain responses, do we understand that depression primarily occurs when there's a major loss, and the the actual feeling of depression to some degree, not entirely, but to some degree, is part of the manipulative effort to regain that which was lost. And and depression is just this kind of discouragement times ten. And I think you're making the right point. There's several points we made, and that certainly is one of them. That that discouragement that is illegitimate is discouragement which serves a self-protective purpose. When you see a person backing away, when there's movement away from, then discouragement can become a very useful thing to keep the person from facing that which is difficult. Other thoughts as to discouragement being illegitimate? Yeah, even as you said that, as you kind of role-played it there for us, you heard the anger in your role-play, didn't you? I've done all I could and it didn't work. And you used the word self-pity, which is an angry kind of a word. What's the anger there? I think you're very right, that this kind of illegitimate discouragement has a real angry component to it. Where's the anger? I've done all that I could, my resources, they aren't sufficient, and that ticks me off. 
You see? Because why? What's my goal? My goal is to make it without God. My goal is to make it on the basis of my own resources. My goal is to somehow avoid ever having to face my ultimate poverty. And the Lord in the Beatitude says, you want to be happy, start by admitting your poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the ones who are out of resources. And our response is, oh no, that isn't the path to happiness. That's the path to misery. Lord, you're all wrong. And so then when I come to a point of saying that all of my resources are insufficient, you know, one of the things that I've had to face just in the last couple of years, now that I have teenage boys, um, they're a little less controllable than two or three-year-olds. Have you noticed that, those of you with older kids? And um, you can't quite get them to, uh, to do with, uh, with the leverage the way you used to be able to get them to do. And uh, in their freedom, when they were six and seven, the worst they could do was such and such. Now the worst they can do is such and such. And, uh, and it's scary. And I find myself sometimes getting very angry. And what I'm basically saying is, doggone it, I have worked so hard at being a father. And I have. I really have. And it seems to me that I'm due something. I'm due having everything go just the way I want it. Doggone it. Anything wrong with that? You hear the potential for real illegitimate discouragement there, don't you? That basically I'm coming to the point of saying my resources, see, I really, I, I mean, I knew better, I taught better, but I look back at my parenting of little kids, and I really believe that I believed, what I said I didn't believe, but I did, <laughs> that if I just worked hard enough at being a father, I was guaranteed that everything happened the way I think it should. Listen, folks, do a study sometime of the promises of God. We have fewer promises than most of us bank on. The promises we have are enough. And God will keep true to his word. But we claim a lot of promises God's never made. And that really is nothing more than a disguise for insisting that our efforts accomplish what we, which we demand will happen and God becomes the intermediary who's going to make it happen for us because we demand it. And then when he doesn't, we give up on God. Illegitimate discouragement works like that. It's the kind of a discouragement where... where um, where, where I really stop moving. The person who's legitimately discouraged is a person who's still moving. Our Lord never flinched on his way to the cross. His face was set as a flint. and He didn't back away. He struggled. It was hard. But you don't see him backing away and saying, not today. Because his delight was his Father's will, no matter how painful, how unexpectedly painful it really is. You see, that's where you get resistance. When you, when you follow the Lord um, up to the point of pain that's worse than you thought. We all, we all know there's a cost. And we walk very faithfully until the pain exceeds the cost we expected to have to pay. Then it's, then it's curtains on Christianity time. And our Lord didn't do that. So illegitimate discouragement, as it seems to me, is when, is when I back away. Now what happens, you see, is in so many congregations you have the, you have the, the people whose discouragement is their profession. And they're the ones that kind of hog all the encouraging efforts of the body. You have the, and I don't mean to say this as unkindly as maybe I'm sounding, because these people are image bearers and need help, but the help that they need is not simply to go alongside with the hug. The help that they need, the encouragement for them sometimes, is the, is the stronger rebuke, because their discouragement is illegitimate. Now there are times when my discouragement is illegitimate, there are times when it's very, very legitimate. And when my discouragement is legitimate, and how can you know that? What's the difference in, in illegitimate and uh, legitimate? Yeah, moving. Have I backed away from responsibilities? Am I no longer dealing with whatever area has been hard for me? But if you see me still dealing with it, then, um, then, then, then you want to come along and just be very good to me and very warm to me. This gentleman that I know that I've mentioned before, whose wife has been such a, such a difficulty for him, 
I don't, I don't know how to encourage him in the sense of changing his wife. I've often had little fantasies. I've counseled with his wife, and I've had little daydreams of being able to present to him a fantastic wife. After two years, she's no better. And that just grieves me. But I can't demand that. I'd like to. And I want to know how to encourage him. I want to give him just this fantastic wife, and I can't do it. So how do I encourage him? I believe his discouragement that he feels is really legitimate because that man keeps moving. And my encouragement to him, and I've been able to be of some encouragement to him, my encouragement to him is just to say, let me tell you the impact that your example makes on me. Let me tell you how much you mean to me. Let me tell you how, how much confidence you give me as I counsel with people in miserable settings. Because I see you as a man who's pursuing God and has learned the meaning of the word joy in the middle of a mess. That gives me confidence to tell somebody else that there's joy for them. I know the word of God says it, but you flesh it out for me, and that means the world to me. Now, that's encouragement for him. Now, suppose his discouragement were illegitimate. I wouldn't say the same thing. If he weren't moving, I'd rebuke him. And that would be encouraging. I wouldn't want to say it quite that way. The question that's asked, and I have a further comment, I know, let me just answer what you said so far, is the, is the movement always moving back into the arena of where the pain has been, where the, where, the, where the pain has been difficult in relationship? And the answer is yeah, but maybe not quite the way you might hear me say it. Um, uh, this man has, has, has consistently moved back towards his wife, but there's been a real change in the way he moves back towards his wife. There's no longer demanding quality about it. He's not back in kind of struggling every day with it. In some sense, he's kind of ignoring her. But not as an avoidance of the struggle. But because it's the best way to deal with his wife for the moment. But there's no kind of a, there's no self-protective backup. That's the issue. He's still moving towards her, but the best way to move towards her is to, is to not always be there sometimes. I mean, she calls him on the phone ten times a day. He used to be there all the time. And now I'll tell the secretary, I'm not going to take the phone call. And when she storms into the office, he says, honey, I'm not going to talk to you now. See you tonight. Leave. And that, to me, is movement towards his wife. <laughs> well, I mean that. I hope you understand that. That's not meant to be a joke at all. I mean that, I mean that very sincerely. And you now, if he were doing that angrily, if he were kind of enjoying telling the woman to get out of the office, we have some problems. But there's no joy in his heart as he does that. He has the joy of being strong as a man, but he has no joy in the fact of having to do that to the woman that he loves. It's hard for him. And he weeps when she leaves. He's godly. Is that right? Respond to your question. You had a follow-up thought there. Oh, yeah, the point that's being made here, the notion of moving back into relationship with the offending party, the person who's rejecting, you, you certainly want to emphasize that you're not moving back to that relationship with any kind of a dependency that they're going to respond in a way that will bring you joy. Your dependency must be on the Lord, and if you're not nursing your spiritual life to the point where he's becoming real enough where you can make it in spite of the rejection, and then you're, then you're missing the boat. I certainly don't want to uh, be a sadist and encourage masochism and say that, hey, you want to get spiritual? Go get miserable. And go find somebody to reject you and stay there as long as you can. Then you'll be, you know, I hardly want to say that. I want to say, what's the godly thing to do? And that when I say, what's the godly thing to do, what I'm saying is, 
What is the behavior that exhibits the most trust in the Lord and abandons self-protection most completely? And what that might mean is telling his wife to leave his office. What it might mean is telling her how mad he is. What it might mean is giving her a huge hug when she just is looking like ice. It might mean not giving her a huge hug when she's looking like ice. There's no behavioral formulas. It's what does it mean to be freed because the Lord loves you and because he's sufficient, you don't need to protect yourself from pain, therefore you're free to minister to the other. What, that, what form that ministry takes is going to depend on the situation entirely. What defines it as godly is the motivation beneath the behavior. Okay? So you have three points now that I've made so far in the, the dynamics of encouragement. Reversing denial by no pretense, strengthening by drawing out the potential for courage, and then exposing the self-protection of discouragement when the discouragement is illegitimate. Not yielding to the pull of illegitimate discouragement by always being there for the person, when maybe the best thing to do is to not be there for the person. What you're going to hear um, in dealing with Mike, I think, I think it's tomorrow's tape, that um, he came to me last summer um, when he first came to the program, and uh, one of his first sentences to me was, he came up to me in a very pulling way um, and said to me, um, uh, Larry, I really... Um, really want to get with you and really want to counsel with you, really want to get some things straightened out. And as he said that, it was just such a strong pull. And, and my response, I think, was to be encouraging. And, and I said to him, Mike, I just don't choose to take the time for that right now. Now, there could be other reasons for saying that. I mean, I really didn't have the time. And you have to have the courage to say no once in a while. But in terms of his pull, it was right not to yield to it. And as he kind of sulks and you know, nobody likes me sort of a thing, the right thing to do may not be to come up and give the little kid a hug because he's not a little kid. Now, again, let me say this and I'll say it through the week probably 35 times, so don't, don't get too impatient with me. As I talk about Mike this way and Janine, the little kid who was pulling and all this, I just don't want you to hear any disrespect towards Mike. Mike Mike's come to be a very close friend and I'm not putting him down or laughing at him or making him exhibit A so we can snicker at his sinfulness. That's the last thing I want. Now, Mike's a super guy, and he's got more courage than I have going on videotape like this. And uh, so just don't hear me in any way mocking him or putting him down, but do hear me exposing some of his strategies just as a way of helping us understand how these things work. Let's take a five-minute stretch break. I don't know your name. I'm sorry in the back that this had the verse for me. Why don't you read us a verse here? He just mentioned a verse to me that is a verse that I used to use a lot when I talked about encouragement. I'm not sure why I haven't recently. That certainly fits in, and it's just a helpful verse to establish a context for us as we continue. Read to us in First Thessalonians there. Yeah. And, and to me, just to make a brief comment on that verse, which deserves a whole lot more than a brief comment, is that there are different emphases with different conditions. That the idol maybe doesn't need the, the, um, the same response as the, as the faint-hearted. Uh, the, the, uh, the passage in Galatians 6 where it talks about he that is spiritual restore and then bearing each other's burdens, you know, bear your own and bear the others. Remember that passage? which at first glance looks contradictory. You bear your own burdens and then bear somebody else's burdens, whatever. 
And um, there, there's a real difference there that needs to, be, needs to be thought through. When it talks about my bearing my own burdens, what it really means is the word that's used for burden there is different than the word that's used for burden later on. And the first word for burden is the idea of, um, it was used to describe what the soldier would wear on his back, his, his knapsack. As he would walk through the field, you know, he'd have certain things on his back that he'd carry, and that was his burden to bear. And he ought to carry that burden. I have certain responsibilities that God expects me to honor, and you should not come in and do my responsibilities for me. I should, you should let me carry my own burden. But then it says, bear the other person's burdens. And when it says that, the word changes from knapsack, from the ordinary responsibilities of the military life, to when there's an avalanche of unusual responsibilities. When things just fall, fall down upon you. You know, I don't think that you ought to go in and help my wife cook a meal. That's her job. But suppose my wife gets ill and both of our kids are sick and I'm away for three months. There's an avalanche. Go help her cook a meal. You see? So normally, uh, each, each of us is called to bear our own. But when there are unusual circumstances, move in and help. Move in and help. Normally, don't do what the other person needs to be doing. But when there's an unusual type of circumstances, do that. Move in and try to be of help. And this verse emphasizes the different kind of conditions. The, the idle need to be admonished. The faint-hearted need to be strengthened. The weak need to be helped. There are different responses. Understand the theme which coordinates the whole thing really is the theme of ministry. The theme of encouragement, to use the word more broadly. But I want to somehow move into your life with the idea of having an effect on you, which if there's any effect at all, will move you towards the Lord. That needs to be. Now, let's go on with our last three points in our last um, half hour together. In talking about providing rich encouragement, we've talked about the, the need for it because there's a tendency towards denial. Um, what was my first point? I forget what he even said. The, the, the immobilizing effect of struggle. Because people are immobilized and because people deny, there really is a need to move in each other's lives. And to free us from immobilization and to encourage us to move away from denial, that certainly is something which needs to be. We talked about three points of how encouragement works in terms of its dynamics. And now let me just talk about um, just a couple of general ideas about what it means to provide rich encouragement. We have some dynamics, we have the need, and now just some of the, oh, some of the essence of what it means to provide rich encouragement. The first thing I want to talk about here is the word presence. I'm not sure if I have a better word for it than the word presence. Being there. I don't think um, Tripp would mind my telling the story. Tripp is one of the interns this week who's leading the morning sessions, one of the four of us in the morning. Tripp is just a, just, a, just a great, great mind and a caring guy, and he's been through lots of struggles and coming out on top, and I really have a lot of respect for Tripp. He's one of our interns, and he's going to Quebec. Uh, he speaks French fluently, and he's going, to, going up to that uh, part of the French-speaking world um, to begin a, a counseling ministry and has a lot of things in place up there that are going to be very effective. I'm just looking forward to what God's going to do through Tripp. I'm the supervisor this semester. He's one of our interns. I was watching a tape of Tripp, a videotape. He videotapes his counseling, and I watch it with him and critique. And um, he was counseling with a 19-year-old college girl who's um, mildly bulimic, um, a girl who, um, who has been so beaten down by her parents that she just doesn't talk hardly at all. And, and Tripp said to me, look, i got a case I need help with. And so I said, well, video it, and let's take a look at it. And... Um, Watch the session with Tripp, and again, as I say this, don't hear me knocking Tripp. I have nothing but respect for him, but he makes mistakes. I make mistakes. We all make mistakes. Here's Tripp's mistake. Um, <laughs> as I watched the videotape with Tripp, it was clear um, that, um, that this girl was sitting there just not, not talking at all, and Tripp just was, was trying to get her to talk. 
Um, and he said to me, you know, I don't know how to get a person who's that quiet to talk. Sounds kind of basic, Larry, but what supervisory help do you have? What's some method to get somebody to open up? You know, I, I don't know how to do that. And um, he was trying every sort of resourceful mover he could think of, and he's a resourceful guy, and he had lots of different ideas as to how to get her to talk. And nothing was working. Nothing was working at all. And as I watched that videotape with him, towards the end of it, I just lost my, lost my mind, and I just shouted. And I said, Trip, you don't give a rip about that girl. Now, Trip's a caring Christian. And he was kind of stunned by it, and I was stunned by the intensity with which I said it. I didn't expect to say that, but I just, ooh, it just got me angry. And, and he said, what do you mean? And I said, Trip, you're trying to get her to talk. You aren't trying to help her. You're not there. You're a technician looking for a new method. You're not a lover who's there caring about the woman. And we talked about that at some length. And we were both in tears by the time the thing was over. And it was a very meaningful time for Trip as he learned what it means, as he, as he learned to spot more of his own self-protection. Uh, like, like any good counselor going out to counsel, he feels inadequate. Anybody here not feel inadequate some of the time? You know, man, if you don't feel inadequate, you haven't talked to people richly. I mean, I feel inadequate all the time, and that's really true. That's not just a cliche at all. I really feel very inadequate. Well, Trip, as he's going out to start his own counseling ministry, he's a little scared. And he's really wanting to, to, to know that he can handle things. So he has a tough case, and now what's he trying to do? He's validating himself as a counselor. He's not caring about the girl. And he began to see his self-protection. And he began to see how he's scared of not being a person who's able to be there, so he has to validate himself. And as he began to repent of that, um, it was just so much fun to watch the next videotape. He was simply there. How do you say it better than that? I don't know how to. He was there. And the girl wrote him a letter, stopped by his house, a girl who for five sessions said just about nothing, wrote him a letter, stopped by his home to deliver it personally, and the letter basically was, you know, I felt so beaten up by you until last time. And now I feel like I want to talk to you. And now they've had lunch together, they've talked together, she's talking, she's chatty, she's getting over her bulimia, she's really improving. Why? Because Tripp has learned more of what it means with her to be there. The definition of being there is what? You're being there for the other, not to protect or enhance yourself. Now, that's just kind of a fancy way of talking about the obvious. We're just talking about loving people. Are you there for the other person? What does your mind do as I say all that? You had your hand up a minute ago. Yeah. Well, I wish I could. Can you define more clearly what the process is that would lead to the kind of freedom so that he ends up being there? You see, I, I, just, I just don't know if I can give steps other than to say entering more and more richly and clearly into what it is you're really doing as you're with somebody. As you see what you're really doing, that you're really there to protect yourself, then I believe what happens, the more clearly you see the failure of love, He didn't talk as much. He didn't pressure her. He was able to put into words what was happening in her mind. If she didn't respond, it was okay with him. The way he was sitting in his chair, before he was kind of sitting up the whole time and kind of just saying to her, I'm going to get you to talk. And now when she didn't talk, he kind of sat back and it was basically saying, it's really okay if you don't. I don't need you to. I'd love for you to talk so I could be of help to you, but if you don't, I'm really relaxed about that. 
and not feeling an internal intensity. So he wasn't sitting up and kind of talking like this. And, and as he began the session when he was doing it wrong, the beginning of his session was, was stiff. It was artificial. Well, hi, um, how are you doing today? And the next session was, how are you doing? I mean, it was just real. He was there. He was caring about the girl. And the girl sensed that. The difference was night and day. Now, does that mean he has it licked? No more than I have it licked. Yeah, I think that's fair. You know, the old sentence of Job's counselors did well until they talked. <laughs> they were there for seven days and didn't talk, and apparently there was some support, and they began talking. <laughs> and, and you see, what really, what really happens, I think Job's counselors is an, is an illustration of this. Think of how many times when people uh, interact with you, with me, that the real intent behind the interaction is to get us to change. To see something different, we're having a doctrinal debate, we're debating whatever, our approach to counseling, whatever, um, our understanding of this passage, or our lifestyle uh, debates, whatever. And, and how many times are we really there saying, I really want to hear what you have to say versus I want you to hear what I have to say so you're going to change. So there really is a pressure that I'm going to somehow get you, not for your sake because I know there's joy in walking with the Lord. That's not why. But I'm going to get you so I can add some sort of a notch on my Gun belt, you know, that I won somebody else. I have a scalp to win. And yeah, that's one of the raps on Job's counselors, it's fair. And being there at a time of bereavement for somebody else is a, is a way of, you know, so many of us don't go talk to the bereaved, and we're all guilty of this. I can raise my hand on this. And the reason we don't go and talk to the bereaved is because, well, we don't know what to say and all that sort of thing. But that's not out of concern for the person. That's sheer self-protection. And to go there and uh, just be who you are and say, I have no idea what to say. All I know is I hurt for you. You know, I've not been in that situation of losing a close loved one. I've been in a situation where I've been hurt real bad about some things, not bereavement. But I've had people say, this couple weeks ago, a good friend of mine just said to me, Larry, I know you're down about some things. I don't know all the details of it, but man, I'm for you. I don't know how to encourage you, but I'm for you. And my response was, that's nice. I like that. It was a strengthening to get up and keep going. He didn't know how to do it, and he didn't do a real good job technically. But his heart was there, and boy, that made the difference. He was there for me. That's encouragement. Now, how do you teach that? 20 techniques. Here's 13 sentences to say when they're bereaved. Here's the five you pick. You know, when your wife leaves you, then here's the 10 sentences to say to the guy. No, there's nothing like that. You see, this is why programs and teaching encouragement just drive me up the wall. People that produce videotapes and write books, you know. <laughs> and there's such an opportunity to pervert all that. And, and I just want to emphasize so much, there's no technique to this. The issue is, who are you? Are you a person who's committed to self-protection, in which case there's no technique that will work? You've all had the experience of somebody coming up to you and saying, how you doing? And somebody else coming up and saying, how you doing? And the second person encouraged you, the first person didn't. The exact same words, same inflection and voice. How come the second one encouraged, the first one didn't? Because the second one meant it. The first one didn't. The first one was protecting themselves by looking good as a Christian should look. The other one really wanted to know how you were doing. So the issue is not technique. The issue is, is not methodology. The issue is not even training. The issue is character. The issue is motivation. The issue is who are you. And that's what I mean by presence. And a good way to, um, to assess that, to understand what the word presence means, is to ask the question, 
when something really bad happens in your life, when the thing that you're living for the most doesn't come through, who do you want to be there with you? When you're hurting at your worst, who do you want there? Whatever name you come up with, that person has presence. Ask yourself what it is. Who do you want there when you're hurting? Who do you want to talk to? Who do you want them? Who do you want to talk to you? Define presence by looking at, at a person who has it in your life, who has that kind of power. That's the first element of, of rich encouragement, presence. There's no technique. It's reality. It's who you are. second thing I want to say is the power of love. And I use the phrase here, modeling grace, and this is simply going to be a repetition of an earlier point, really. How many times have we experienced, and we could all tell some horror stories about this, how many times have we experienced in our background, I'm thinking now even our childhoods going way back, of, of saying something, of making something known that's happening within us, and not getting the response that our thirsty souls craved? Isn't that kind of standard? Can't you think of the time that you just made known to your dad something and just wanted so much to have the look of warmth? And and it wasn't there. The time you went to your mom and just said something or other, you made something known, and your mom's response was maybe rather official as opposed to warm. The time you called your folks and didn't get the response you wanted. You made something known and you got criticized for it. All of us have had the experience of taking a fragile part of us, exposing it, and having it stepped on. Now, what I want you to think about is that fragile part of you. Think of that fragile part of you. None of us look fragile sitting here. You know, we all look together, and we have our pens, and we're all dressed, and we can all talk and interact and say intelligent things and quote verses. But, but, beneath, that, but beneath that, there's a part of us, a part of every one of us, me and Dan and every one of you, that's, that's, that's really fragile. I don't want you to meet a certain part of me because I don't know what you do with that. I've mentioned before to IBC audiences that we've had feedback over the years that we're very vulnerable and let things be known. But understand, we're selective with that. There's a certain fragile part to me you're not going to get to. Get that straight. I mean, that's kind of my attitude. Isn't it yours? Sure it is. And because it's a certain fragile part, I don't want to expose, because I, I can recall exposing little fragile parts along the way, just little sentences, little thoughts, little feelings. Some of who you really are, some of that fragile part, do I come through and accept it? Do I model grace? See, the only person who has seen all of me just happens to be the only person who has fully accepted me. That's rather unusual, isn't it? The only person who has literally seen all of me is the only person who is able to fully accept me. That's the grace of God. He sees all of me while I'm yet sinner. He dies for me. He looks at me and says, my goodness, you deserve hell. But by my grace, I'm going to give you heaven as I die on the cross for you. Now, that's grace. Now, I want to model that in your life. You want to model that in my life by, by when, when, when people start sharing some deep internal kinds of things 
our first, our first response must not be to kind of jump on them. Encouragement means that the fragile, part of encouragement means that the fragile part is not bruised further. And that's why when a Janine um, last week told me how mad she was with me about something. Uh, actually, she didn't say it was about me, but I knew it was. And so I said, you really mean me, huh? She said, well, yeah. You know? And, and my first response was to defend myself, because I think she was wrong for what she was thinking. How's that for ministry and love? <laughs> but that's self-protection, isn't it? So rather than doing that with her, I did handle it, I think, well. And my response was, you know, I'm just so glad to see your freedom in telling me how mad you are. Man, I just feel so good seeing your freedom. You're really, you're really moving. Now, in my mind, that's, I don't think her anger was terribly attractive. I don't think her anger was even justified. You know. But uh, to, to say that, that, that somehow, somehow I'm still for you in the middle of that strikes me as very, very crucial. Uh, last thing I want to say about rich encouragement um, really is the, is the last point. Um, and if you don't get good at this, I wouldn't worry about it. Um, because the first two really are the issues. The first two is, are you there and do you accept? That's all I've said so far. Are you there without self-protection and do you accept the person wherever they are? Is there a mood of acceptance? It's striking, by the way, that a lot of your questions this morning that uh, you'd like to ask Mike and Janine, not a lot of them, but several that I just thumbed through a couple quickly, um, you'd like to ask um, uh, Mike particularly, did you feel accepted by Larry? And I gather the reason for the question is you anticipate that he would say no. Um, you know what I find often, this will sound very defensive, pardon me for indulging in a minute of, minute of self-protection here, it's the first time all week actually, um, but what, what often happens, and this happens so many times, I do a lot of counseling with people watching, that um, a lot of times the people will say, gee, it seems to me like you weren't real kind to that person, and I, I would guess they didn't feel accepted. But more often than not, when you ask the person, did you feel accepted, their answer is yes. Mike didn't feel rejected by me. He really didn't, because acceptance is not, is not some, somehow pretending and staying away. It's moving in, and when you see the ugly part, not calling it pretty, being honest about it and saying, yeah, I really am, though. I don't like that. You know, I feel pulled from you, and, and, but that does not make a person feel rejected if, in fact, you're doing it because you have a commitment to see them grow. A good friend of mine had an interaction with his daughter a couple nights ago. His daughter wasn't behaving terribly well, 14-year-old girl. And he told me just yesterday, the day before yesterday, he sat her down and, boy, he, he talked to her. And he said, I want you to know I'm really angry about what happened. And his wife later said to him, Honey, I just wish my dad would have once talked to me like that. The point is, it was involvement. Do you hear the thought? So the idea of, of being there and loving does not mean that you don't deal with what's there with your own emotions. But it means you don't back away. It doesn't mean always saying warm, wonderful things. It means being there without self-protection. It means being there on behalf of the person. It means accepting the fragile part while you do deal with the ugly part. Yeah. It sure, it sure seems that way. And I know in my own life, I can, I, I'd, I'd like to say the same thing. It's just, 
Uh, it just doesn't seem right to go deal with certain things. It just doesn't seem like it's going to work out. It's just too hard. That can be. And it's going to feel like it's just too painful to deal with it. I'd like to suggest, though, that the ultimate criterion for dealing with it is not how much pain it's going to produce for you, but what really what, what, what does constitute ministry towards your mom. And what may constitute ministry towards your mom is not dealing with certain things. I don't believe that ministry means you always bring up everything you notice. My goodness, can you imagine that kind of relationship? Imagine if the Lord did that with his 12. They'd had time for nothing else. I mean, he saw it all. We see little glimpses. So, so yeah, I think my response, let me, let me say two things about it. My response first is that you do want to make the decision that, um, that no, it's never, it's never too painful to do the right thing. It'll seem like it is. And if you're controlled by fear, then you've got to say there's a problem. If there's a fear of doing something which you're just not willing to do because it's too painful, then like the rest of us, you've got to struggle on your hands. Because I can think of situations like that too, as you have. But you don't want to, let, you don't want to ever justify not doing something on the basis of it's too painful. But having said that, you don't want to say that um, therefore you should do whatever is maximally painful. You should do what's right, and sometimes doing what's right is not bringing up painful things for the sake of the other. They simply aren't able to handle it at a given time. Um, it simply is not going to produce godly effects as far as you judge. And that's certainly a, a very legitimate way to approach it, as I, as I would see it. Does that respond to your question a little bit? Okay, the last point I want to make after I... Oh, go ahead. How do you know how the person is going to be able to respond? Well, you, uh, we have on sale a um, little crystal ball that, uh, yeah, and the answer is, of course, you really don't. And this is where you're simply going to have to take the risk of making judgments and making mistakes. Um, you see, one of the things, um, when I ask that question, and I ask it a lot, how do you know? And I just don't know. And sometimes I get immobilized by uncertainty. And therefore, I'm really afraid to make a decision because I don't know what the outcome's going to be. When that's the case, I've got to say that my real understanding of life is to not make a mistake. And I've, I've got to, everything I do in my life is, is potentially a serious mistake. And I've got to have the courage to say that my justification, my, my righteousness does not depend on my absence of mistakes, and therefore I must make, take the risk of going in and using my head and getting counsel from others, but then making judgments that could be wrong. Oh, oh, sure. Ultimately, it seems to me that if the person really does know that you care, that likely that's going to that's going to cover a multitude of problems. You know, um, that love does have an have an effect like that. That if the person knows that I'm really for them, that along this is this is what parenting's all about. That's nothing more than a whole bunch of mistakes covered by the fact that you care. <laughs> you know, and you just need to have the courage to go do it anyhow because you really do know you care, and uh, and eventually that's something they're, they're going to realize it too. Yeah. What if you have a person that you're moving, you know they've got pain and they, they want you to come in so far and you want to get in that circle of pain with them, but they just let you come so far? How do you, in encouragement, how do you get to the point that you can move on out to the area of ministry? question is, how do, you let a, how do you move into a person who lets you in so far and no further? What do you do at that point? And the answer, it seems to me, is two things, two broad thoughts, hardly an answer, but two broad thoughts. 
And one is that you simply make, it, make up your mind that you're not requiring yourself to be an encouragement. You don't require that you be able to encourage the person. You might strike out with this person. Otherwise, you have a power struggle. You're demanding the opportunity to get in. And as soon as you demand the chance to get in, you're provoking resistance and it's your fault. Second point um, is that you point out what's going on. And you simply say what you observe in terms of your own, you know, the, the pull, the own internals. And you say that I really sense that you don't want me any further at this point, And I want you to know that's okay with me. I don't need to be involved any further. I'd love to be and I'm available, but I won't push any further. And then I just warmly walk away. Warmly. But I'd walk away. Last point. Let me just make it briefly. The wisdom of words. Penetrating to what really is there. Very simple point here that's kind of one of our themes. How do you, how do you able to put into words what's happening in the other person's life? Haven't you all felt missed by lots of people who have tried to encourage and they've come up to you and you've been just struggling about something and they said, well, I know it really is tough when you feel inadequate for a job. And your response is, I don't feel inadequate for a job. What are you, what are you talking about? And so you say, well, yeah, that's kind of it, I guess. I just, uh, I just don't know if I feel that good about this. Well, I can see it really is tough when you just feel kind of down on yourself because you haven't got certain gifts. No, no, that's not really what it is. Now, how, how do you say words which penetrate? You, you've all felt missed like that. I mean, I've had people try to encourage me. And they just say all the wrong things. You know, just drives you nuts. <laughs> I'm thinking of a couple of situations. I told my lab, we have lab groups last year. You in that lab trip where I, yeah. I talked about the trip today, by the way. You want to get the tape? <laughs> That's the trip back there. Um, trip was in a lab last year where they said, um, Larry, how can we encourage you? And I think I said, none of you can. Is that what I said? Something warm like that? Um, I, I just felt missed. And my thought was, um, I don't know if you folks understand yourselves well enough to understand me. And that's kind of the point. That if, if you're going to really understand me, the place to start is understanding yourselves. And that's the old Matthew 7 principle that we allude to a lot. The Matthew 7 principle that, where the Lord says that uh, if, you, if you think you see the speck in somebody else's eye, when you see the speck in somebody else's eye, my suggestion, the Lord says, my command really, is uh, forget about that speck and take a look for the logjam in your own. And once you look at the logjam in your own eye, then you will see clearly, and the Greek word changes, the original word changes, then you will see clearly what's going on in the other person. The condition for discernment into somebody else is previous discernment into yourself. You want to be an encourager? Understand yourself. Let the word of God rip your life apart. Let the Word of God expose you to your own deep longings, which you know you want. You know what you want. You know what you long for. Where, where, where are you on the iceberg of deep longings? Do you know how deeply you long for certain things? Where are you in the iceberg of wrong strategies? Do you know how your self-protection works? When the, the more you understand about that, the more you're going to see what's happening in somebody else, and the better you'll be able to say words which penetrate. The better you'll be able to say words that really make a difference, words that penetrate. Life and death, the proverb says, is in the power of the tongue. You can say discouraging words or encouraging words. Now, let me just say a few wrap-up comments here, and then we'll quit. We just kind of talked about discouragement in terms of what it is and the need for it and the dynamics of it and some techniques or some, uh, some thoughts, rather, not techniques, really, but some thoughts as to how to involve yourself in richly encouraging people. We've talked about presence. Uh, we've talked about modeling grace, and we've talked about penetrating words. And let me just say this in our last couple of minutes on this little workshop on encouragement. 
that if, if as you hear, hear me talk about this and as you ponder the scriptures talking about encouragement that we really haven't looked at very much today, but Hebrews 10 talks about it a lot. Hebrews 3.13 talks about it. Lots of passages talking about encouragement. If as you ponder that, you say to yourself, you know, I really would like to see more encouragement in my, in my, in my Christian community. I really want to see a community where people can, can feel more supported. Then let me make a simple suggestion to you. Start with a couple of people. Don't, don't go to your pastor and try to get a program, unless it's my tapes. Don't start with some big program. Get a couple of people. See if you can develop an encouraging relationship with a couple of people. You know another synonym for this? We, we use a lot of different words to say the same thing. We're talking about discipleship. We're talking about counseling. It's all the same thing. In a broader sense, we're talking about friendship, fellowship. Are you involved with somebody else where you're there, your presence is real, where you model grace, where the fragile part can surface, where you learn to speak words that penetrate because you're disclosing your own life and you know your own life in an increasing way? Do you have somebody you're interacting with like that where you sense a real bond? If it's not with your spouse, you ought to start there if that's at all possible. Work with your spouse on that. You know the hardest thing? We, I've been involved in different institutions where, where, where there just is no meaningful sense of encouragement at all. <clears throat> it's sad how often in Christian organizations the leadership really has no meaningful community. And then we try to shepherd the flock and have them model us by having stiff relational distance. And it seems to me that, that any, any church or any leader that wants to see things going needs to make sure that, that he knows what it is to be involved in open, meaningful, encouraging community himself with a couple of other people. Ask a couple of people, will you meet with me regularly, a couple times a month maybe? Let's just sit and chat. Are you going to have a Bible study? Yeah, we are going to have a Bible study. We're going to ask the Bible to really speak to our lives. And I want to expose my life in your presence. And I want to learn what it means to be encouraged by you. And I want to learn how to encourage you. Can we work this thing through? Can you help me? Can you show me what my pull is? Can you help me see when I haven't got any presence for you, when I'm manipulating you for my own defensive reasons? Can you help me see when my response to you is judgmental and harsh? Can you help me see when my words miss you entirely? Will you have the courage to tell me you missed me? Can we talk at that level about our real lives? Because that's what God cares about. God cares about how our lives are really being lived. Move into a couple of small group situations where you can just think about these things and discuss them. And if uh, I know some people have shown the videotapes, and and if, if uh, a, go, a good way to follow up on the videotapes is not just to get, you know, have the videotapes and then have um, a test on it and see if the concepts are clear, but maybe ask are there people who, on the basis of this, want to get together and just work at this in groups of two and three and four and five? Start with that. Let it grow. Don't make it a program. Don't start from the top and make it something which you announce to all the people. King Josiah tried that. King Josiah tried to get everybody to follow the covenant beautifully. And he got the greatest Passover in the history of time. And Jeremiah comes along and says it means nothing. Incredible story. Make it a point to start slow. Build it with a couple of people. Make sure that you have the confidence that you know what it means to encourage somebody else and you know what it means to be encouraged at least a little bit. If you're doing that, you're going to be a real, a real influence in your Christian community. And that's not bad. That's not bad. One comment and we'll stop. Is it good to do within couples, like two, three couples? Sure, couples? fantastic. Get a couple of married couples together. You'll blow things wide open. <laughs> Time's up. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To subscribe, visit LargerStory.com.